Hey guys, Jared here, CEO and founder of Luminous. This is the Ops Unfiltered podcast. I started Ops Unfiltered because I know what it feels like to be in operations and e-commerce. You're handling every single part of the business. It's easy to feel siloed in. It's easy to feel like you have to find a solution for everything. I hope that by bringing raw conversations from other operators in e-commerce that you can extract some value and not feel alone. Many of the operations leaders in e-commerce are running into the same problems that you're running into. So I hope that maybe their solutions can be your solutions. Maybe you can feel not so alone in the warehouse, in purchasing, in your supply chain. So that's my hope. I hope this can be valuable for all of you. Let's dive in to have some raw conversations. Us operators are a unique breed for sure. There's a sense of pride in your work, I think, being in operations. We're like, you are a creative person, you want to find a solution. What kept your head down when you were at Nomadic? The control issue is huge and trust. Like I am the most trusting, untrusting person at the same time. The evolution of Nomadic with Emerson at the helm, where you're keeping everything in house. It's gotta be 10 times more complicated. It's complicated. I hear on LinkedIn, someone talked about that day about being an entrepreneur. I'm very entrepreneurial based in general. So I think part of it too is, I'll throw them under the bus too. We had Black Friday launched three weeks early one year and they didn't tell me until the day of the day before a day of. If you could go back in time, would you do anything different? The issue that I would have had is. I have Emerson Hammer. I'm excited to be here. It's going to be fun. Woo. <laughs> it's going to be messy. What's up, man? Here. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's take off the filter. Let's get a little bit messy. Um, so I'll, I'll do, just do like a super quick intro. Let me know if I missed anything. So Emerson, his background, he was the director of supply chain at Nomadic, which is a really big, well-known brand here in Utah. Um, we're going to dive into a lot of the operations there. Um, and currently, he is the director of partnerships at Corso. So um, let me know if I'm missing any more qualifications or context, but like honestly, being the supply chain director of of um, of Nomadic from the early days all the way until July of 2022, that's that's uh, you, you you saw it all, I'm sure. So yeah, it's uh, it's fun, it's messy, it's uh, diverse for sure. So yeah, I'd love to dive into that and uh, talk about the growing pains and, and everything that goes in from Kickstarters to launch to Shopify to the whole kit and caboodle. Exactly. So. Um, what I'm most interested in, but before we dive into your experience at Nomadic and the evolution of the business and the issues you ran into, um, I wanted to first discuss, just to open things up, um, you and I both <clears throat> currently we're in similar spaces. Like we're trying to sell to the same audience. Um, and I, th I think we have a shared belief, which is e-commerce ops leaders, they're, they're like, they're too busy to consume content like marketers or basically other people within the organization. And therefore they're harder to reach. Like they're it's, it's harder to get a message that resonates with ops people because they're in a spreadsheet or they're in the warehouse or they're, they're, they're so damn busy. Like they're actually doing shit all day. Whereas marketers or people who control spin for other parts of the organization, they, yeah, like, like, I don't know, you said it best. They're, they're kind of like high level strategists who, um, they spend their time researching other tools and competitors. What, what are your thoughts on that? Like, why do you think people are lurking in, in the it's, shadows for ops? I think us operators are a unique breed for sure. Um, 
being in two sides of the business, like being an operator in it, there's a sense of pride in your work. I think being in operations where like you are a creative person, you want to find the solution. And usually you have some type of creativity where you have a unique solution that you want to develop that solution for it. You try to create it in-house internally, but you may not understand there's already a solution out there. So I think a lot of times we try to reinvent the wheel for our unique situation in quotes when most like another brand has experienced it, but in operations, we are very heads down, very, we think Excel can fix everything. So if I just create an amazing Excel sheet, it will fix it. Um, but tech has evolutionized so much um, in the past five, 10 years that there probably is a solution out there, but a lot of brands either on, are on legacy softwares and they're used to legacy software saying, you can't do that, or that doesn't, that's not how we operate. And so they try to create their own solution within a legacy software. So I think that's part of it. The other thing too is you are putting out fires the whole time and you're tired of sales guys talking to you. Every sales guy says, hey, I can get you better rates. Hey, my system will improve your process. If you've done an ERP process, an ERP should fix everything if you customize it to your way. Um, so whatever that solution is, usually there's some constraint. And so you're used to like, I've been sold so much crap, I guess on the sales side, you don't trust the sales process in general. And so you try to do it yourself. Um, and as I've been able to have my head up the past like year or so, um, changing roles and being able to like identify and like you said, now I'm at Corso and director of partnerships. And I understand there's so much value through partnering, not just on like a business to business transactions. You think of like lead sales generation, or whatever, but actually partnering with softwares or with other agencies to help your supply chain definitely is possible. And usually on ops, we're looking for cost reduction. On stuff, but when you bring in a new sales platform, it's going to cost you a couple hundred bucks, a couple thousand bucks a month to implement this. But you don't look at the cost for me to spend hundreds of hours to develop a new spreadsheet or whatever it is, um, whatever the process is, customize that opportunity cost versus the cost of an existing software that could solve that problem. Um, so maybe probably got a little rabbit holes in each different type of situation, but I've been so impressed actually of where the market is with supply chain technology that I didn't realize before. But now that I have my head up, and see a little bit more like, oh, there are some solutions out there that really make sense. Um, I just said, I don't know about because your head's down as an operator um, or you're, I don't want to say too prideful because you want to solve the the solution. Um, but I think that happens a lot in the industry. Yeah. Okay. So you, you hit on some ma major things that I want to dive into. So there's a couple of themes of what you just talked about operators. And I, you, first off, you and I both have background as operators of direct to consumer companies. So like, Everything you're saying is hitting. Like I, <laughs> I've been there. So a couple things, keeping control, keeping your head down, mistrust of salespeople, and then like intersection between technology and processes. So let's, let's dive into one of these first. Why do you think as operators, we keep our heads down? Um, I personally think it's because of control. Like you, you want to be the one to control the, solution like you want to be the one to have like i solve this problem instead of like you said getting your head up and being like but wait this company could handle this whole part of the supply chain or maybe we could do a 3pl or maybe like what what keeps your head down what kept your head down when you were at nomadic yeah i think it's part of an innate just like a feature of us in ops honestly of the, the control issue is huge um and trust like i am the most trusting untrusting person at the same time um, and stuff, because I think if you work with a, if in supply chain, nothing is stable, like as much as you want to believe that way, like as a process oriented person, you think everything is robotic. Um, 
And so it's like, I'm going to get an order off of my, my marketplace. It's going to go down into my OMS. It's going to go into the WMS. They're going to pick, pack and ship. It's going to go out and that will go out in two hours. And you think that's how it's going to happen. But that API doesn't work there. This doesn't happen here. Whatever isn't connecting in that process, not that works in there for two weeks. And you're like, Matt, the warehouse, like, hey, why is it not shipped? Like, oh, we thought we shipped it. We didn't. Whatever. And you get misplaced trust um, throughout that process. So I think in general, it's like based off of previous experiences, you see like, hey, this hustle is supposed to work, but something out of my control broke that system. So if I haven't designed that process, if I build something, I can fix it because I built it. But when there's someone else I have to trust and they break it and I don't get that mm-hmm. right time or like using a freight forwarder and like, hey, this is going to get picked up here. It's going to get delivered to this date. And then COVID happens or whatever, your container gets rolled. You don't trust, you don't have trust in that aspect. And I, I mean, I think in every aspect in my career on supply chain, I've always maybe either try to work with a partner to resolve it and feel like I get hit, a, hit a, a wall at some point, or I get promised by another vendor, hey, I can fix that issue for you. I go to them and then maybe it's just biting a diff- fighting a different battle now in a different aspect that my previous vendor didn't have that issue. And so just like, hey, if I can bring as much in-house as possible, that's more control for me. But that is more overhead. There's more experience you have to have. You can't mm. use that as much. So you become a generalist instead of a, a specialist in that area. Yeah. Um, so it really is either hiring the right people, but also hiring the right people. You hire people and you're like, hey, can you do this job? And you think they're going to do X, Y, and Z. Maybe I'm just, in my experience, bad at hiring. And I'm like, uh, they need more training than I expected. Or that's ah, not your right fit. You got the right culture fit or whatever it is. So it's really hard to trust in people when maybe you have such a grand vision of what a supply chain should be. I remember getting into supply chain. I was like, dude, we're just gonna sh- we're shipping. Like when I started Nomadic, we started with wallets, like the smallest product possible. I mean, it was the best. I wish Nomadic stayed a wallet as far as operations because it's so small, so lightweight, easy to ship, low cost. You can do anything with a wallet. It's a great product to start off with, honestly. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's so, so easy with minimal SKUs. I love that phase of the business. Um, but as you scale and things change, you got to diversify. You have to, um, it gets a bit more complex, but I remember this thing, like a wallet, like how hard is it? You just put like a label on a wallet on a, on a package and you ship it and it gets there, right? Like every time. And it doesn't, it's like, oh crap, we're using the wrong carrier on this. Oh, this carrier doesn't have tracking on it. Whatever the solution is. So it's like even shipping a simple wallet. And when you're doing it from your home, shipping maybe 10, 20 wallets a day. Cool. Great. When you're shipping hundred, you're shipping a thousand a day. It's like, oh, those small issues that maybe weren't an issue at small scale now augmented to being 1% of 1,000 orders a day. It's like you have 100 orders going wrong. Like something's wrong with that, you know, uh, or 10 orders, whatever it is. Like you have you have issues that augment and as you scale up through that process, you know. Um, oh, yeah. No, we're, we're definitely going to dive into that. Like as, as things change in the business, as, as things grow and like when software breaks, when processes break. But something I want to dive into is I, something I find fascinating is because I just had Mitch um, at, from Threadwallet. Yeah. And it's so interesting. Like there's it's like it seems like Nomadic and Threadwallets went like two separate paths and they two did. companies that came up like at very different, di- very different points. And I think you can we can learn from this. Like so Emerson took from from what i know you took the route of like okay i want to keep everything as much as possible in house i want to i want to control as much of these variables as possible mm-hmm. mitch from the beginning was just like shift for um for all of my supply chain and like you're just basically giving po's to them and like immediately they outsource to a 3pl and like what's the difference between a thread wallet who they they 
they gave all of that control of their supply chain and purchasing and of the 3PL and fulfillment and the evolution of Nomadic with Emerson at the mm-hmm. helm where you're keeping everything in house. Like it's got to be 10 times more complicated. It's complicated. I think, um, I can't remember on LinkedIn, someone talked about that day about being an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur, I'm very entrepreneurial based in general. Um, so I think part of it too is that creative solution. And for me, it's like, I felt like I had unique solutions to offer. And a lot of the stuff we did, I think kind of going back to it is we've had some very innovative solutions I was able to try out. So I think part of it too is like the founding team at Nomadic, John and Jacob um, are amazing. And they were very trusting with me. And a lot of the aspect too of beginning of those nomadic days was, can we spin up a lot of businesses based off of pain points that we're growing this business? So at one point they want to start our own 3PL. So I was like, cool, if I can dive into that, do we want to be our own 3PL? Do we, uh, Alpha Nomadic spurred off of a, a marketing company. We were working on like an Amazon company. So at the beginning of the culture at Nomadic, I think it was very entrepreneurial and seeing like from one business, how many businesses can we start off of it? So I think that kind of let me diversify and dive into it. And John Jacob Foster, very much an entrepreneurial spirit within Nomadic. A lot of people at Nomadic had a lot of side gigs, um, had their own businesses, their own agencies. And I think maybe how that also operates of the control aspect at Nomadic, we had issues of being burned a lot. I feel like as mm-hmm. if we were betting properly at the beginning phase of it, I, I joined Nomadic when I was still in college. Um, so it was my first like job out of, out of school. I was trying to learn so much. I had plenty of mistakes I've, I've made um in my career i think every operations guy's like oh right we've we save money we also waste a lot of money and we're shenanigans we're trying to do to save money i think um but uh <laughs> yeah there were so some from suppliers where i was like i can't trust a third party doing qc i can't trust a third party doing certain aspects and for us is like we had shipments getting lost we our first kickstarter campaign was shipped directly from china using uh, china post and i think it was some like 30 40 percent of the wallets got lost in transit and we're like, oh, frick, we didn't have enough like touch points on that. Um, and then we had issues of we went to another 3PL, the 3PL went bankrupt in the middle of us being with them. We're like, okay, this is like getting out of hand. Like all of our experiences of outsourcing aren't going so well. And so it's like, how can we control that? So the more control we have, can we do it? And we scaled pretty fast at Nomadic where it was like, okay, what's the cost for us to bring that operation in-house um, and customize it for us that it's pays for itself i mean we outsource where we where it makes sense for sure um but a lot of the time i was like how can we get more control because of, of various reasons of uh of trust or just nuances when part of that too could be partnering with the right facility for your brand i'm, I'm talking about three pls there's there's more supply channels about three pl but as far as warehousing but um as specific use a part of that as specific as it can be in your niche. What I mean by that is like using a warehouse that maybe focuses just on apparel. If you're an apparel brand, focus mm-hmm. on a 3PL that does maybe larger products for shipping larger product, uh, products, but probably a better fit for you. Um, using freight forwarders that are custom to shipping your type of textile so they can do the HS classifications and whatnot um, on your, your product. Um, usually, I mean, most businesses will say they can do whatever they can to get your business. We use some factories that are like, yeah, they're seamstresses, but the type of material we're using, maybe they weren't the best suited for um, manufacturing our product at that time, you know? Um, so stuff like that, um, that you kind of want to be able to keep in check and align with. Um, but I think in general, it's like, hey, you feel you get screwed over a couple of times. You're like, hey, can't trust it. I got to bring it in house and see what I can do. Um, yeah, there's there's so many operations. And to your point before, it's like, 
why why would somebody build a custom in-house solution? Like I I know so many brands who tried to build their own systems or they built their own OMS or like they they don't understand the complexity that they're introducing. Like you're all of a sudden becoming a product manager now and you don't understand the cost, but it comes from this, this idea that I think you're hitting on, which is salespeople of supply chain tools and supply chain vendors um, or supply service providers. They act like they can control the outcome and you're sold on the ability to control the outcome. But as you and I know, you can't, which leads to like this innate mistrust of anything you're buying into, even to the level of like ERPs. It's like an ERP is supposed to solve all of your issues, but like, no, it doesn't. Like, and it's, it's, it's actually, there's what's really interesting is there, there's an intersection between software and processes and, you know, proper sourcing of service providers. That's with an understanding that you can't control your outcomes in supply chain. I think that's, that's, that would be like the advice that I would have. What advice would you give to Emerson or to operators who are, you know, first year at Nomadic? Like that, that scrappy phase, you're about to explode or maybe they're exploding. Like how, what's the advice that you would, you would give them? Yeah. I think part of it too is, um, everything is going to have, when you get when you work with a partner, there's still work to be had on your part. I think a lot of times it was like, hey, we are going to do this outcome, and I expect that to happen. But I thought I was like, hey, I'm relieving this whole aspect of the business, but didn't realize I still had to manage that partner. So even if you're mm-hmm. using like a freight forwarder or you're using this SaaS provider to do X, Y, and this OMS to do something, I still I'm still responsible for getting accurate data into here. And if I have a unique process that's going to filter into this OMS or whatever the software is, I need to make sure that data is clean coming into it. Instead of like, hey, they said they can do it. Let me just plug and play it. But I don't know how to troubleshoot it or communicate that. And I also, in a scrappy mode where we're trying to cut cost, <clears throat> to be honest, maybe I was a bit aggressive on it. I pride myself on being able to like hustle the sale of getting like the best deal. Like I'm definitely like a bargain shopper. And so if there ever was mm-hmm. something where I went wrong, I'm like, hey, I need an X amount discount or I need a like cost was my number one um, like attribute. My KPI was always cost based instead of like resolution. So I'm like, hey, this may not have all the features, but it's 10% cheaper than this other software. I'm going to go with the cheaper one because it's easier to pitch to the team of saying like, this one is $1,000 a month. This one's $500. let us go with the $500 one, but it didn't actually solve the full pain point. It maybe solved oh. it. So I think on me, it's just be being scrappy and being budget aware, maybe or oversensitive maybe to it of being like, hey, this guy gave me the most wiggle room on it or I feel like I got a good deal on it. And so maybe that was just more of my mentality on it, which... um helped in some areas and hurt us in other areas. So there's two things that I'm hearing from you. Like it's number one has been like, in hindsight, you would keep, keep your head up. Like Mm -hmm. there's people out there solving your issues that like there's solutions to your, the issues that you're running into. If you, if you poke your head out for a little bit Mm -hmm. and then maybe a second one is, um, don't be so budget conscious. Like, Mm -hmm. like it's, it's okay. It, 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 it's okay if something costs like $500 more a month, if it's going to, if it's going to solve your problems, like, yeah, um, pencils out for sure. Okay. Let's, let's, let's start diving in a little bit to the evolution of nomadic. So something at Luminous that we're really curious with is the actual evolution of an e-commerce company and specifically like a multi-channel e-commerce company. So the, the way I digest like the evolution of 
a brand is there's certain complexity markers, right? Mm-hmm. And with each complexity marker, it adds a new layer of processes or software underneath it that needs to be filled. Mm-hmm. So with, with Nomadic, what I know about Nomadic, um, it's, it sounds like you guys start out really basic. You, you were just, you were just selling wallets. Um, everything was good. Fulfillment in house. Like, sure, there are probably some issues here and there. What was the first complexity marker that introduced massive issues? Was it when you guys tried to like order out or like when you like, let's get West Coast and East Coast coverage or was it your decision to go to your first 3PL? Like, what was the first thing where something broke? The first thing that was kind of interesting was, um, so yeah, we start off with the wallet. That was one thing. And honestly, it was product size that kind of introduced a new variable to us. So we went from a wallet and then shortly after we went to a notebook and then we went to a bag. So then we have like a backpack slash luggage. So as our products got bigger, the complexity of shipping changed significantly for us and the, what products, what they were doing, how they're manufactured and whatnot. So I think the first thing was size and then scalability. Like we start on Kickstarter. So we have pretty high volume from the get go. Of where I think our first campaign on wallets was something around like ten to twenty thousand wallets, something like that we had, and then our next campaign was like twenty ish thousand on our notebooks, and then we had like thousands of our bag, so we had a high volume. And, and well, at that at that time, walk us through what was what were the ops like? Did you guys have a warehouse, just one warehouse in Utah? How many warehouse employees did you have? Were you just chilling in the warehouse all day fulfilling order? Like what was what was going yeah. on during that time? Yeah, so first one we had what wallet was we did China Post from China direct. And okay. we shortly were like, hey, this isn't gonna work. Then we went to a three PL after six months being with them, they went bankrupt and closed, so we had to find a new warehouse quickly and found another three PL local in Salt Lake, um, and trying to work with them. So we went to that three PL, um, that was down the road. So I was there occasionally. Um, probably did like monthly check-ins with the warehouse um, at that time. And probably when we were at the, between the notebook to the backpack phase, I was probably around, to be honest, at that point, I was like 50% ops, 50% doing other shenanigans, honestly. Um, at that time, when we were trying to start some stuff with Amazon and do some more discovery. And I was trying to promote our retail business at the same time. Um, we were probably doing, I don't think we were doing a million dollars in business that year um, at that point mm. in time. Um and so we were still relatively small, um, with at that, like when we were at the notebook phase, we're probably under a million dollars in year in revenue. And it was the two found co-founders, um, John Jacob, me, and then other college buddy, um, that ended up working there as well were the main employees there. Um, wow. so okay. four people total in the company. Um, and yeah, so we we're really, I was really focused on like, we're cutting costs. We were trying to streamline processes. I was mainly overseeing production, PO placements, um, and then operation. But at that time, I very I was very trusting at that point, though. I was like, this is a 3PL. If something happened to 3PL, it's on them. It's not on me. I didn't really take that ownership at that point, I'd say, in my career, where I was like, hey, you guys, you botched it, fixed it. I just sent a customer service email in. But I wasn't really trying to be like as involved with it. I also was overseeing customer service. I was customer service at that time, too. So again, mm. startup, multiple hats of everything. So it was more like keep things moving. It wasn't as process oriented or trying to fix things as much as like, got it. Emails are coming in. I need to fix the problem just to get this one customer order out. Once we got to like the level of having like our bags come out, we were bigger products, a higher AOV. I mean, this is a $20 product. Our bags at that time are around 200 bucks. Uh, I think they're a little under 200 bucks that time. So I was like, Hey, 
that's a huge price point difference. There's a different customer service experience to that um, at that price point um, and how I handle those, those customers interactions. I have to be more proactive than just saying like, these shipments aren't going out on time. Oh, we're paying a lot for shipping. How do I, I didn't even realize you can negotiate shipping rates. I didn't know I could really <laughs> negotiate warehouse rates. You know, they said, they just went out. I basically, when we vetted warehouses, I didn't negotiate at all. I was just like, what's your price? Okay, cool. That's too high. Next. And just went over like their standard pricing. I didn't really dive into it. Like, okay, this is our product. This is our complexity. This is what we have a SKU count. I didn't really dive into all the complexities at that point. Probably once we got to like the 5 million in revenue. And, and, really do, you, do you just chalk that up to inexperience at that time? Like, totally. It, yeah. That, uh, just like, I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. Also, it was really funny because in college, I studied supply chain, like in college. Uh, <laughs> and all my spreadsheets, like you got great on how accurate your forecasts were in, in business school, right? And I'm like, yeah. oh, my, my forecast is 99% accurate. And then I get in the real world and I'm like, my forecast <laughs> is like significantly to so many in a, in a closed environment, you know, there's no external factors. It's like, hey, you spend $10, you're going to get 50 bucks. Like there, there's none of that in, in college forecasting skills. And the KPIs that we did in college were way different. So I thought I knew everything on that side, but on the small startup e-com business, there's more, so many things to look at. I just didn't know what I didn't know at the time. Yeah. Okay. So at, at that, at that time, let's, let's say, all right, 3PL went out of business. Mm-hmm. It closed down. Um, and did you guys find a new one or did you take everything in house? Yeah, we found another one. So we've been primarily 3PL leveraged. Most, we always have a 3PL. Um, Got it. Okay. Okay. So uh, walk me through your tech stack at this time. So we have, we have a good idea. There's two founders, you, maybe another guy. You're yep. scrappy. It's like million, two million in revenue. You're, you're just, you're inexperienced. You're not negotiating shit, <laughs> but yeah. like it's, but you're keeping things together. Like you're yeah. the guy being reactive to everything in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So what, what was your tech stack at that time? Like how, how were you organizing everything? Yeah. So what was, what was your order management system? Like, how did you get data from the 3PL? How were you guys doing purchasing? How were yeah. you running the forecast? Yeah. We, um, did so Shopify, Shopify to our warehouse 3PL. So we, we only had one 3PL out of Salt Lake. Everything went out of there. Um, so we just used their, just their connection through their OMS to their, our 3PL there. Um, and what honestly, did they use as an OMS? Uh, they use IFS. Do you remember? Yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, no. So it's called. I can't remember what it's called at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was that called at the time? Let me figure it out. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it. Um, but it was Legacy. It was. Uh, it was super old. <clears throat> yeah. Um. So we used that, and then we used. We didn't have ShipStation at the time because we used a three PL for everything. Um, uh-huh. So I did have to go either. We had a couple. We had some stuff in where and like a small back office in our office that we had a couple of things inventory. So whenever I was like emailing the warehouse saying like, Hey, I need to use this needs to ship out or whatever. I would, uh, just go to the, our little storage bin and ship a customer, a product. I just print a label off of Shopify. Um, and then other tech stack we had at that point, our freight, our freight provider doesn't even have a TMS. So this email coordinated for freight and inbound shipments. PO mm-hmm. placement was done through QuickBooks and then forecasting was all in Excel. Um, yeah. and that was our fault. And then our customer service was help scout was our whole tech stack. Yeah. Sounds like a pretty standard e-commerce tech stack. It's like, the, so what I say about e-commerce companies early on and operators early on is you, 
do not introduce like any friction. Mm-hmm. And even, even in, in brands that do fulfillment, like a lot of times it, it, what breaks their fulfillment process is when they go omni-channel. Like, so they're just zero friction. It's like order comes in through Shopify. I print off a label, slap it on a box, take it from my, like put, pull it from my shelf, slap it in the box, slap it on the label and ship it out. Like mm-hmm. frictionless. Same with, same with forecasting that you were, you were describing. Now, at some point, you have to start introducing a little bit of friction, like some processes. Yep. Like when you talked before about when you were exploring, you were an ex, you were exploration, you were an exploration, exploration mode with Amazon and then also retail. Mm-hmm. So explain how that sort of grew your complexity and yep. your first milestone where you're like, Oh shoot, we get, we got to change some processes or we like, we need some software to manage this. What, yeah. what broke that? Um, I think part of it was we got caught up and I, I post a lot on LinkedIn about brands wanting to do multi-fulfillment, multi-location fulfillment. Um, so for us, from going from, I mean, shipping a notebook, it's like at that time we were paying, I don't know, we were using like USPS prior or whatever. And it was like four bucks to ship it almost anywhere in the U S like it was dirt cheap. Um, and we do some share ship methods and we were just going for like low cost as we could on stuff. Um, and that was fine. Once we started shipping our bags and our bags, like they're a bigger product. I mean, these things are like 15 to 20 bucks to ship somewhere. And I was like, Hey, I got to get this closer to our customers. We want to get to them faster and I need to get to them cheaper. So we then transitioned away from our Salt Lake facility and went to, um, Ingram micro and they have warehouses all over the place. And that was kind of the sexy mm. point in that, where it's like, you can have all these warehouses, get access to them. All this stuff is going to reduce your, your customer, your like lead, your lead time to get to customer, your ship times, reduce costs because you're closer to them. But I didn't take into consideration when you open more warehouses, there's more inventory you have to have, especially when you have more SKUs. So if you're doing multi-fulfillment, multi-location fulfillment, it's great for low SKU count. And at the time, Nomadic still was low SKU count. We probably had like 10, 15 well, SKUs. And you guys didn't have an inventory management system at that no, time. And you, didn't. Didn't, you didn't even have an OMS. So it's like this concept of like, oh... I have to actually keep track of inventory for two locations. And like, yeah. there's a concept of replenishment now that mm-hmm. was introduced to the business that you probably weren't even thinking of. And which now was, order routing. Yeah. Which was interesting at the time because in our mind, the data our warehouse gave us was accurate. So I never, at that point in my career, I didn't question what my, the PO I placed with the, with the factory. I'm like, they're not going to mess it up. They're always going to send the right amounts. When the warehouse receives <laughs> that, they're always going to receive what my PO was. And then once it's in the warehouse, the inventory that my warehouse always reports is always going to be accurate. And so I never like fact check that. And so <laughs> once I was kind of like, oh, I th- I, it got to a point though where things started getting more complicated when I was like, I'm pretty sure I ordered like 5,000 units of that, but it says we have four. Oh, and I'm like, that <laughs> off somewhere until I started like, okay, I got to build these spreadsheets. And so then it became... Dude, it was nuts. We had we had a full on, almost a whole on ERP built on sheets at one point. <laughs> it was like it's so it, common. It was like we had sheets inside sheets inside seat sheets, linking in, doing import forms, like everything to keep track of. This is the data we're putting in. This is what well, we're expecting. Why? Why Google Sheets? Why, why do you think operators use Sheets in Excel so much? Like um, it's it's actually a question that we're really curious for the Luminous. Yeah, why, why I think, think it's it is? easy because you can control it. Like I think most operators know Excel. Um, it's shareable. It's uh, pretty easy to interact with. For us in particular, flexible. We had really, yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, 
this process isn't working. Let me quickly change it instead of like rewrite a whole code base or feature base or wait for a developer to do something. Um, it's really nice, but it gets clunky once it gets so big for sure. But I mean, we were databasing everything in there from all the SKUs, the serial numbers to UPCs to a whole product catalog. We had everything in it. Um, but also it was really interesting how our vendors worked was they worked off of basically POs through Google Sheets. And so it was kind of interesting just how when we purchased from our manufacturer, they tracked everything in Google Sheets. So we could track everything from that point. And we tried to get them on different systems and processes. Like they are sheets. That's all they did. That's all that works. So I was like, hey, we can base stuff off of that and built it across. But once I kind of at that point, as far as the trust issue of things, once that kind of popped in, I was like, our inventory looks way off. Either we have too much or too little. And didn't realize, even though we use a, th- a 3PL who had an OMS and a WMS, Mm-hmm. I, to be honest, until like a few years ago, honestly, probably three or four years ago, I didn't realize an OMS and WMS were different. I thought like ShipStation was honestly like a WMS, like, oh, ShipStation is a WMS. Definitely not. Um, and so when I saw the OMS side of our, our 3PL, I was like, what I see here is what is they're seeing. But they're like, oh, our data between our WMS actually isn't the same in our OMS. They're like, they knew there was a break between there. So I saw... 500 units they saw 50 units in stock so i'm seeing on my side hey i have inventory ship it they're saying you're out of stock and i'm like over here it says like oh well, that's wrong i'm like well you're telling me there's 500 and you're saying there, i'm out of stock because the oms and the wms inventory weren't like isn't that so fascinating right there though is like you you were experienced ops at this point like mm-hmm. you, nomadic was made what maybe like three to five million in revenue or something you'd been yeah. doing purchasing for a long time you had launched SKUs, and you didn't even know the difference between WMS and OMS like that. Yeah. That's common. Like, and it's again, it's, it's because ops people have their head in the sand. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so interesting because even for me, it's why, it's why so many ops people don't, they're unable to find solutions to their problems because they won't put their head out of the sand long enough to even understand the technology market and like what things are called. Like, oh, this is an IMS and an OMS and an ERP. And like, what, what problems am I running into right now? And like, what are even the solutions I can look for? And it's, it's also a reason why I feel like people end up taking on an ERP. Like they go from Google Sheets to NetSuite. Yeah. Or Google Sheets to like Acumatica. It's it's yeah. again a symptom of, of this. It's it's really interesting. No, what's what's crazy about it, I mean, there's obviously um so during kind of fast forward a little bit more, it's always been interesting to network with other operations people when they will come out of their shell, I'd say. Operations in general. I started a couple of years ago when I was in Utah, a supply chain networking group. And it was super fun, super awesome, and it became like event sesh during COVID where I said a bunch of, of dudes come together of supply chain ops and we just talked what the pain points we were going through. And it was good. It was, I, I honestly, I got a lot because it was more like a therapy group where I'm like, dude, this container's not moving. This vendor screwed me over. What are you guys doing to get stuff out of Vietnam right now during COVID <sighs> when the pandemic's there or whatever it was? Like, I think probably 2019, I started like a group meeting on a monthly basis and it was super helpful. But at the same time, it was really hard to get ops guys even into an event like that. It was like, it's not sponsored. It was when I was at Nomadic. It was like only brands talking about their supply chain issues, but it still was hard to get ops guys there, which to me, it felt very value driven um, to get them out of the warehouse, to get them out of their spreadsheets, to get them out from behind the desk. Cause it's not very common 
I think, where marketing in other industries, it's very much like relationship based. It's very much, um, very networky and stuff like that. In operations, it's very much like almost a badge of courage of how long you're working, how hard you're working and stuff like that. I feel where it's like, dude, we're solving problems left and right. I don't have time to socialize or do this other stuff. Like I have to fix this problem. I'm the only one that can do it. I think it's semi a badge of courage, like a, a badge of honor of like, I'm the yeah. only one that can do this. So I have to stay behind. I have to sacrifice for it. at least how I felt a lot, honestly. Um, Cause it's hard for me at the same point to like delegate where it's a blessing and a curse. I remember multiple times, like I was out, I took a day off and I felt so, I, it almost sucked to take a day off of work because I knew there's more work for me to do. It's not like, oh, Emerson's out of the office. Someone else will take care of it. In a small startup team, there's not some, you don't have a back, like someone behind you can't automate a lot of the stuff I did on yeah. a daily basis to a degree. Um, so I felt like, even I remember I, I went skiing one day and I had to miss like half my ski day because something happened with, uh, I can't remember what software it was, but we couldn't get orders out. And so I was like in the lodge on my phone trying to like fix it when I'm like, dude, I'm on vacation right now. This sucks. That's just, I think that's like what ops guys are. Like, like you stop whatever you're doing in your personal life and your professional life to put the fire out. And that's what ops do. So even, even in that environment where I feel well, like this. And, is- and specifically e-commerce ops, because mm-hmm. e-commerce is so reactive. It's like yeah. the Shopify order kit, like the expectation, it, you're always competing with the expectation of Amazon. And mm-hmm. if you're running a brand like, <clears throat> like nomadic, it's like, dude, if, if you're, if your Shopify API to the OMS of your 3PL is broken, like you're kind of like the only guy that's yeah. going to dive in and fix it. And you're yeah. going to have hundreds of pissed customers. So. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. The other thing too is like, yeah, seeing the customer reaction time and what they're expecting. And so for that as well, it's like, we want to be able to portray accurate delivery times, but also when like carriers aren't delivering on time, it's like, I can only do so much when FedEx is not delivering. And also at the same time, we had issues as well was like, I was like, I don't understand. It took me a while to realize our warehouse is shipping orders out on time. They're creating labels on time. They're not actually shipping it out. And so we had issues with like, even on those, yep. they might understand this is a KPI you can track. So once they realized I was tracking, like our orders are going out late, we had one of our warehouses just print the labels in time, but it would still take a day or two to actually ship them out. And so we're marketing like, hey, this pack will be delivered by Friday and it's getting there Tuesday or Wednesday. And I'm like, dude, we printed the label on time. Is FedEx taking forever to deliver to UPS or whatever? And it's like, no, that was in the warehouse for three days. And then we had a lot of missed shipments because a part of it too is just like partners scaling up or doing whatever they're supposed to do, whatever wasn't happening. Then they would batch print the labels, but then they weren't picking the orders with it. So then labels get crossed. So customer A would get customer B's order yep. because of that. So <clears throat> one thing goes on to another, blah, 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 whatever it is. Um, and it's a chain effect. So I, you, like if things are quiet and ops, I was more concerned. I was like, something's happening. If someone's not, if someone's not breaking right now, almost it's like too good to be true. I'm like, let's, Let's figure out what's going on, but, but yeah. So going, going back to your, the group of operators, um, mm-hmm. was that like a, was that a, was that a changing point in your operations career? Like, it was something for what, me. What, did that help get your head out of the sand a little bit where you're like, wow, like there's other people. Wow. Oh, he's doing it this way. Or like this person does in-house phone and they use this software. Like, did it lead to that or was it just more of like a therapy session? It was really therapeutic more than anything, as far as like, I felt validated that I wasn't the only one going through this. Cause at the same time, I mean, again, Nomadic, John Jacob are awesome. Like they were so good to me as far as letting me do shenanigans. Like we tried a lot of unique processes there that I loved. Some of them worked really well and some of them did not work very well. 
Um, but it was great to like feed my like, creativity of finding unique solutions. And at the same time, it was great to go to these other operators. And at the same time, I kind of wanted to be able to go back to the board and say like, Hey team, like we're not the only ones experiencing this with like Emerson. Why can't we get these delivered on time? And I'm like, I'm trying my best. I don't know why. And I'm like, Oh, this other brand is doing the same thing. They can't get it out. Um, at the same, they're the same rate or this other warehouse, other three PLs doing the same process. We're not alone in these pain points, at least. So that was helpful. I mean, dude, it got crazy at some point during COVID. We all looked into like, should we charter a full on 747 and share the cost to fly from Vietnam to Salt Lake? <laughs> and we're like, we were with competitors. Like, dude, the team over at Wandered love those guys. They are awesome. Um, they're competitive to Mac. Like, they, we both make bags, right? We're both in similar spaces and we, we, they were part of my, they're part of my networking group and we would, routinely talk about supply chain issues and like hey dude like this is causing an issue I'm like should we sh- share a flight together do you think we could save money so we looked in like oh, that is so together. cool <laughs> so that was cool i became a huge component over uh collaboration over competition and just saying like hey like we can collab with other brands see what they're doing see what we can network with um <coughs> to 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 get better rates work better angles and stuff like that one of the things we did pretty decent on is uh, shared shared shipping rates and stuff like that. Like we basically partnered mm. with other brands fulfilling from the same location, and we're able to like compile data of like this is the uh, this is the volume we're pushing out that give us better rates because we are like a shared ship account almost. Um, so we're able to like collab in areas like that to get us better rates, looking better on different stuff like that. So we were able to do some unique strategies because of that. I mean that's some of the great creativity we're able to kind of employ at Nomadic of. Uh, leveraging the Utah community, the supply chain community, when I was able to network with them. Yeah. But again, it's hard to connect with them because we, again, some guys that are like, we, we, there, dude, we, we need to seriously, we need to build a supply chain community that gets ops people out of their shells. Like, yeah. I feel like we could do it. Yeah. And it's, there's so much value in it, especially like, like nobody's selling you anything like like that. There has to be a safe space for that. Like, yeah. nobody's going to try to sell you anything. Like, even yeah. if it's sponsored by some, like, just, Come here, talk, vent, get your yeah. shit out. Like we can help your, we can help you get your head. Like we've been there. You can yeah. get your head out of the sand and there, there are solutions mm-hmm. from operators who are not trying to sell you. Like, Oh dude, have you tried this or have you tried this automation on ship station? Or did you know that you could pull in your data here? Um, okay. So something that I really want to get into in this podcast is, yeah. um, so, okay. Back to the evolution of nomadic. Um, you know, million dollars in revenue. Um, you guys just start out with wallets. You start expanding SKUs. You got, um, 3PL goes out business. You, uh, you get another 3PL. You start expanding to Amazon and to retail sales. You're at 5 million. Things start breaking in COVID. So uh, up until, up until it's probably like 2020, 2021, mm-hmm. you, you never really looked at like software for the solutions of your problems. Everything was like on Google Sheets, OMS, like really basic software, but yeah. it was mainly like I like I'm the solution to these problems. Exactly, I've been burned in the past. Now, walk me through the jump to an ERP. You guys yeah. jumped to an ERP in 2020. This is very common. Yeah. What um, What was going on? What What caused this? Uh, th- there's so much to talk about. Like, for, first off, what was going on in the business? What caused you to think like, man, I, we need an ERP. And then yeah. also let's, let's start diving into the research process. How did you even start researching? 
Yeah, we kind of heard we had uh, some other brands that jumped to an ERP. I think a Wander jumped to an ERP when they're relatively small um, on stuff. So I heard like, hey, they're using NetSuite. Seems like it's going well. They had some issues, but it seems like they jumped early. And it seems like the evolution of a brand is you do go to an ERP. And if you can do it sooner, you can build your processes around that. Um, so in 2020, we started looking at ERPs and I just couldn't justify the cost of it. So I legit, like dude, me and my ops team at that point, we had probably two or three guys in ops um, with me. I had like a freight manager, uh, like a freight coordinator, um, and then another like inventory manager. Um, and then me on my, on my team. And then we had our outsourced 3PL and stuff like that. Yeah. So at that point, uh, me and Russell was my inventory manager at the time. We're on calls with NetSuite, Sage, Bright Pearl, all these ERPs. And they'd be like, it was like a six week sales cycle of doing like three or four hour calls multiple times. So we bring popcorn to the office and just like, Hey, what's going on? We're so bored, dude. It's the, those are the worst calls ever. They're so long. So, so much discovery. But well, we- so this is so interesting. Like, first off, why, why the need to jump like straight to an ERP? Like I'm, so the evolution of some brands, some brands, it's like very natural and like, you know, like they build from an OMS to an IMS to like, you know, slow, they slowly get there. Kind of like thread, thread yeah. also. I, I interviewed Mitch last week. Um, what about nomadic? Like what made you feel like, okay, we need to make this jump. Yeah. Was it just simply because Wander was a uh, one? Oh, Wander's using NetSuite, like seems to be good or no were I specific think things the, breaking. Yeah. Stuff was breaking for sure. Um, so before we went to, we didn't go to an ERP until 2022. So in 2020, oh, we started okay. search. Wow. And what we did first was we had, again, we started going to Omnichannel. So we had Amazon FBA. We did FBM for a little bit. We were having a hard time keeping inventory in stock on FBA due to like size requirements. So we have big bulky products like bags and luggage. And we can only keep like five or 10 units in stock, but we're selling like yep. five, 10 units a day almost at times um, on those SKUs. And so it was like we had to do FBM and FBA at the same time. We had to get inventory out to our, our three, from our 3PL out and whatnot. We had a very unique supply chain. So again, one of the gr- blessings and curses of being nomadic, they gave me a lot of creativity. So kind of backtracking a little bit before we did our whole search, we when we were at Ingram Micro, they had a great OMS, and I, their OMS is beautiful. It's like I like that that if it it's great. I wish it worked 100 percent the way it was supposed to. Like again, like we had issues like inventory matching up and some other things like not always collaborating correctly in that platform. Um, but we st- we moved away from them to take advantage of. Um, called a three twin de minimis program, which lets you import orders from outside the U.S. into the U.S. under eight hundred dollars or less, come in duty free. So, mm. what Nomadic started doing, which was a fun project, we started with a warehouse down in Mexico that we switched through PLS because products from Vietnam in our industry have like a seventeen up to a twenty percent um, tariff on it. tariff, and so we need to reduce that. And the bags we're making, those are that's a, that's a couple dollars on on just import fees and like, Hey, if we can eliminate that by warehousing in Mexico and it's called mm-hmm. a Mar-a-Lo, like a free trade zone. We partnered with yep. a free PL down there and moved inventory. So we left Ingram micro. We had two warehouses. We were out of, how did you figure out about that? By the way, honestly, um, we got an inbound email from them. So they cycled in. And again, my ears perk when I'm like, save money in a unique way. I'm like, I haven't been pitched that before. <laughs> like I've been pitched, like I'll cut your rates by 10% or whatever. Like, right. Yeah. Like, we'll save you money because we're efficient or whatever. Like I hear that pitch all the time, but like that was interesting to me. So I talked to, to talk to him, flew down to Mexico. Dude, it was amazing. Um, there was, so cool. and it, it worked, right? It, yeah. It's, it's legal. It works. It's amazing. Cause what you're doing is you're warehousing a free trade zone 
And so you have like a truckload, let's use like round numbers, like say you have a thousand orders a day that are going out. The warehouse in Mexico is a free trade. I'm using the right, it's a market order, but I'm going to call it a free trade zone, FTZ, where you don't pay duties and taxes to Mexico. They cross the border, you get a thousand orders, they put a thousand labels on those thousand orders and it crosses the border. And when they manifest, gets to customs, they say, oh, there's a thousand orders under $800 because they're going to a thousand different people. Instead of being consigned to Nomadic, it's going to John Smith, Debbie, Eric, whatever. In the US, yeah. they see that manifest of a thousand people instead of one consignee of Nomadic. And so that comes in duty free. So we were importing, saving thousands of dollars a day by doing it that way instead of clearing a container load, paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in duties on it. We're now not doing that, just how the way we import and taking advantage of trade agreements. So we warehouse in Mexico did that. The issue happened there is we were now we went back to one location, which was great. The issue is the warehouse sold us on that that solution. Within six months to a year of being in that warehouse, they said your volume is not they grew so fast because it's a very niche business. Yes. It's amazing. They said your volume is too small. We're kicking you out. I'm like, dude, we just barely got inventory here. We're loving these savings. And so then I had to go and I set up with a partner and other. I found a free trade zone that wasn't doing this at the time and set up our own fulfillment in their bonded warehouse. And then we realized it was not. That's so scrappy, man. That's that's awesome. And then we realized we have big products. The other issue too is we now, this is now COVID's happening. Bless, I, I was, this is an internal debate and whatnot. We could have gotten away with this and not. We started making stuff in China in the middle of 301 tariffs and we made luggage there. And that product had like a 35% tariff on it. And that was our most expensive product. It was over $100 cogs. So we're paying wow. $35 to import just this one product, one, one luggage piece. And we're like, you can't fulfill that in the US and not that like if you $35 in cost is going to be like $120 retail you have to make up for your margin on it, right? So it's like we can't sell this bag. The bag become became unsellable if we had hit with those tariffs. So we had to warehouse in Canada and Mexico to keep it at a semi-affordable price point. Um and so I then was like, but that bag's too big to ship from Mex from California to New York. That's expensive. How big is it? It was, it was like uh something like it was a big, it was like 36 by 24 by, it was a big box. So I then set up another warehouse over in Ontario, Canada, in a free trade zone there, which was a crosstalk facility that we could do the same thing. So we had East Coast, West Coast fulfillment now doing three, two, one, not paying duties and taxes or, 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 or working around them or whatever. Um, at that point of taking advantage of three, two, one program. That's when things got co- complex for sure. At that point, that's when I realized an OMS and WMS are different. I needed order routing involved in it. We tried doing it through ShipStation for a while. It didn't work really well in ShipStation. Yep. <clears throat> um, and so we're looking for an ERP. At the time, I still couldn't justify the cost of like a eighty dollars to $100,000 cost for a NetSuite at the time or whatever they're charging. I was like, that's ridiculous. So we used OrderHive as an OMS. And OrderHive at the time, it, it's since been acquired by Sin7. Um, the demo went great. I was like, this solves our need of order routing. We can keep track of all of our PO placement in it. We can do all this stuff. We implemented it. And within six months, we outgrew it. Like the servers were too slow. And mm, it was just like, dude, I'll, I'll sit there and wait for like 15, 20 seconds to buffer an order information. I'm like, dude, this is taking too long. I, I can't operate out of it. The automation rules that we were sold on it didn't really work that well. So it still took manual intervention to make sure the order routing, it wasn't that complex of order route is pretty generic. Um, so I, I, have, I have a question here. Like, because I mean, this is like complex evolution. Like, yeah, it got it got tricky quick. <laughs> if if you 
if you could go back in time, would you make the decision of like, we're just doing in-house fulfillment, man. Or like, we're just sticking with one three PL or like, mm. would you do anything different? Would you still go the Mexico route or would you like, um, yeah, I, I don't necessarily regret the Mexico route. Um, there's significant savings. Like it's saving hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in that, that program. So there's definitely cost savings. The issue that I would have had is when I left, uh, when I transitioned out, we were working towards a model that was different of not having warehouse employees, but having nomadic employees in that bonded facility doing the labor. Um, mm, because it kind of just got to the point where it was a bit more tricky of scaling it and the warehouse that we were working, the warehouses we were working with, they weren't built for fulfillment. They were, one was like a value add service in Mexico where they were like, Hey, they're like more of a return center and they just had their license to bring stuff into their warehouse, free trade zone, cheap labor, and then get it back out. And they wanted to get into the fulfillment game. And I had to teach them a lot of that aspect, but they didn't have the software really in put their software. They had a homegrown WMS, but it was meant for value added services, not for picking necessarily. It had, yeah, it had capabilities to do pick and pack, but it wasn't built for that. And so we had complexities there. And the same thing with our facility in, in Canada was it was a crosstalk facility. Um, mm. but the thing is like, we were kind of in a desperate pinch for it where we're like, we have this product launching. It's not going to, we, we won't make any money on this if it's not in a free trade zone. And our design and manufacturing team was like, it has to be made in this factory. This factory is a factory. That's like the quality is in China. We have to do that. So that's where we stuck. Um, so I don't think it was the wrong move. I, th- I wish I got to a hybrid model sooner where it was mm, again, like, these it. Are specific nomadic employees in your warehouse working only on nomadic stuff. Cause there are some complexities. Unfortunately, like, even with the QC we do overseas, stuff came in and was like, Hey, all these bags are missing a keychain holder or a sunglass case, or we had tweak something to it, or we would have certain campaigns where like, Hey, this new thing is coming out to work the inventory a little bit for whatever reason. Um, I was like, we have some specific needs that our brand needed that weren't in their typical wheelhouse. So it took a while to um, fix, you know, or, or figure out with our 3PL versus we want the same people working on our account every day. We need three people on our account and and pay whatever that cost is there. Each doing, dealing with international businesses was complex. Mexico has certain like labor laws of how long you can hire employees. Like short term wasn't necessarily like, an option as it is in the US of like temp labor. Um, and so there's different complexities there. Same with Canada. There's the, the, the working environment's different that it would have been nice to say, these are our client. These are our, our people every time. This is our tech stack. This is what's going on. Um, so I wish we got to a hybrid model sooner. Um, got it. Okay. Now, now d- jumping forward just to, cause I know we're running low on time right now. Yeah. Um, bright pearl. You guys ended up choosing bright pearl as your ERP. Um, yeah. you made the jump, dove in. What did you learn from that process? Um, did you? First off, I realized Luminous has to market me like two years ago, dude. That was the main thing. <laughs> so <laughs> that, was, that was the thing. You guys, you guys got in the business a bit too late. Um, cause I needed you guys. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was a thing. A big part of it was cost. Um, on it is why I went with Bright Pearl. Um, why, was, why did you choose Bright Pearl over NetSuite, for example? NetSuite seems to be like the... NetSuite's the sexy one, for sure. The big, the, yeah, they're the sexy one. That was hard. They're hard the Ferrari. Sell. Yeah, it was the hard sell internally because everyone's like, I just heard NetSuite. They just have that brand recognition and stuff. And I was like, Bright Pearl, honestly, is like a, is a newer ERP. Um, and they're barely an ERP. Like At the time, they're, they may have changed things now. They 
were like an OMS that became an ERP and they had some bolt-ons to it. Like the counting part, I was like a bolt-on to it. Yeah. Uh, a thing was like Bright Pearl was like, which like a third of the cost of NetSuite when we got to it. The other thing too is NetSuite was like, hey, we can do anything, but we have to build it. And so I was like, you're not really like the so. It's not that I wanted a solution pre-made for me, but it's like, I don't know what I don't know at the same time. I'm not against having guidance. And I think a lot of people in ops make things more complicated because they don't know you can streamline it in their mind. Like this is the way my path, my mind's going this path. I'm so focused on it, but actually I could do it this way a lot easier. It's already pre-built. Bright Pearl had, I felt like a good e-com structure around it that hit most of it. And they could add on top of that with NetSuite. It was like, here's a cloud space, build whatever you want. And Bright Pearl was like, here's a framework. You can operate here, but we can customize and bolt onto it. But here is this infrastructure. Um, and so that was, was huge for me. It was like, Hey, you, I can see, I can visualize it. This is what I need. I'm not, I, I felt like I was building a whole new software with NetSuite instead of Bright Pearls. Like, here's the bones of it, at least. Um, so, so, so with, Thre- with Thread Wallet, they, this is what they said. Um, we feel like we, we were in a Corolla. So at the time they were using Finale inventory mm-hmm. and then maybe just a couple, a couple other tools. Um, nothing, nothing crazy. It's like we were in a Corolla. It's really reliable. And then we went from a Corolla up to a Ferrari. <laughs> and they were just like, I just wish there was like a Tesla, like a Model 3 Tesla, like somebody that was a little bit more updated that understood e-commerce. And he said the same thing. He was like, man, I, I wish that Luminous was around back then. Yeah. Um, what, what would you, would, you probably wouldn't do anything differently. Like, what was your experience implementing Bright Pearl? Um, lot. It's very collaborative. And so what's hard about it is um, ops, I feel like, typically gets siloed a lot. Uh, the company makes a decision and then says, ops, figure it out. And so yep. this is the first time in ops where I was like, this is... And then they get pissed if they don't figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, like, go ahead. Dude, we had, uh, <laughs> I'll throw them under the bus. Dude, we had Black Friday launched three weeks early one year, and they didn't tell me until the day, uh, the day before, the day of. Like we were gonna play it in November, like the typical Black Friday, and they launched it like November seventh or something like that. And like I'm like, where are these orders coming from? Like, oh, we just put out our Black Friday campaign now. And I'm like, those orders aren't going out, dude. We just had like we typically do like 500 orders a day or whatever, and we had like thousands. And I'm like, I don't have a warehouse team to fulfill that. Like, how are we doing this? And I was like, figure it out, Emerson. Yeah, that's common in ops, I think, where it's like this is what we're doing. So. That was one of the more big, like a bigger initiative to be like, this is an ops decision. And it was very stressful for me to make that decision. Cause I'm like, this decision is me now inflicting that on other departments. And I know that ops is like the ugly stepchild already. So it's just like, I'm like, Hey guys, accounting, you need to buy in and you're using this software. And so it took Ooh. like a whole company kind of thing into it. I'm like, Hey, design, when we place POs, this is how it's going. This is how it's going to work. Mm. And like marketing. So the adoption was really difficult. Yeah. So and, that you, was and you had to be like, Hey guys, you're using this now. Like, why do you think it's so difficult for e-commerce company to adopt it? Um, I think it's company as a whole and every department is fragmented. And so until you can get everything together to work together on something. Um, and it took us a while. I want to say that was the first time I ever like, we gradually got to that point as we grew, like we have like a, a, a um, a wholesale team and the commercial side now, like doing retail. Once we saw the complexities of that coming in and then marketing doing their own thing, everything was so fragmented. I would say probably in 2020, 2021, we started having better 
like group, like everyone was in the same room, like on a weekly meeting, at least before it was like, what are you guys doing in ops? Okay, I'm working on this. Okay, cool. And like, we would just report to John or Jacob saying, this is what I'm working on. And then that was their job to communicate to people. But that wasn't as a kind of a broken chain. Um, like we all had to be in the same room on our weekly meeting and say, this is what we're all working on. But anyways, well, I think that the implementation of it was, was hard is because it's a disruptor of current processes. And we've all seen in it, tech, it adds friction. And, and like also this. it's like, how long is this going to last? When we implemented order hive, I knew order hive was not the end all. I thought this is a, like a two year software, two to three year software that will get us before we go to an ERP. And that was the goal of it. It was like, Hey, I can learn on this software, what an ERP should do. Cause it was like, it's smaller than ERP. It had similar functionality. I could learn on that before I got this. That was the goal of it. It's way clunkier than I ever thought it was going to be though. Um, so that was the goal though. And then, then I think they saw like order hive isn't doing what we thought it was going to do. And then is this software going to do what we think it's going to do? Um, or is this going to be something that's like temporary? How long do we buy into it? What's the lifespan of it? Cause I think in general, most people, it's like once you stuck to an ERP, that's your process. And that either helps you or hinders you for a long time. And it's yes. not like where you might see like, cool, you're moving from like a Zendesk to a gorgeous or whatever. Like that's a little bit of friction, but it's doable. It's not as big of a, of an issue. It affects a few people's jobs. This affects the whole organization. Everyone's in on it. And if we're going to move to another software again in the future, that's going to be painful again. So they're like, Hey, if we do an ERP, we're doing it once, install it. That's it. Like that's what happens. There's so many scare stories about our ERP of like, they couldn't fulfill orders for a couple of days. Systems were down, accounting's off, whatever. And there were some, some issues once we implemented on Bright Pearl as well. Um, I believe some of those like we had duplicate like PO entries. So like we thought we had like 10,000 units coming in. We had 5,000 um, coming mm. in just to how we migrated that data over. But again, it's like important to have clean, clean data in, clean data out, dirty data in, dirty out. So, um, yeah, see, I, I have this theory that e- even, even like the bright pearls of the world, they, they were built to service an antiquated supply chain. A mm. lot of these issues that you're talking about. Um, and, and this is kind of the inception of Luminous and like why it exists mm. is the evolution of e-commerce company, particularly nomadic. Like it's, pre- it's relatively predictable where they break. It's like when you introduce wholesale, when you have multi, when you have multifaceted distribution and fulfillment, like you need order routing. Like there's, there's predictable places where software breaks and where you need to add friction, where you need to add processes. Um, my experience of like Bright Pearl and NetSuite and Acumatica is yes, they have everything, but it's, it was built to service something really antiquated. So a lot of times you're having to switch the ways you're doing things un- unnecessarily just because somebody new hasn't come out yet. Yeah. Um, and, and they're it's very simply broad. just because of that. Yeah. And it's a very broad situation in general where it's like, do you want to make it? I'm not saying like, you have that sounds like this is your specific like niche in, in general, but it's like there's so much you can do in it. You don't know what to do with it. I feel at times, um, and so something that is more like either ecom centric and stuff like, I mean, NetSuite you can use for, I don't know, like a lawyer's office probably to an e-commerce business to a cement trucking yep. business, like which is great. But it's like those features capabilities might actually messing up some of your business a little bit um, due to a different industry operating a certain way. Um, and, the, and the thing is about e-commerce operators is what can we count on them to do mm-hmm. to implement the software that introduces the least amount of friction? That's yeah. the problem with NetSuite and BrightPearl is like, yes, you can do work order management. Like, so you could, you could manage the manufacturing of, 
a freaking the thread of or, or the raw materials to a yeah. backpack. But like that introduces like 17 steps. <laughs> what we know about e-commerce companies is like they want like, yeah, they want to be able to manage that. But like with maybe one or two steps. Like <laughs> so yeah. that that's how Luminous is building. Um it's like how how can we have the service of wide game in the supply chain, but understand that operators it's like it's a one scrappy guy doing it. And <laughs> yes. instead of sixteen steps that service like freaking like yeah. a massive food company, like you know, it's nomadic. Like it's yeah. Emerson and nomadic. Like he, yeah. he just wants to see his inventory numbers in two spots or he he just wants the order routing to actually work. Like okay. I, I think that's that's the gap that we're trying to fill. And it's yeah. it's good to hear that like it's it's so the gap is there. There's, there's a huge gap there. I mean, NetSuite definitely is for like corporate, like big corporate types of processes. I'm, I'm sure it is great there. Um, and most of those ERPs are probably for that. But like in the e-com world, doing, unless you're doing like a full supply chain, full loop supply chain, a full loop sourcing where you're like, I'm sourcing each material and then I have my recycling program off that. I have like all these other things that aren't really needed. It's like you need high level data, you need access to that high level data. And a lot of stuff in general, I don't think most softwares in general show you which data you should be looking at. Something that's been interesting on on this side of the business is understanding what businesses highlight certain KPIs in their product. And it's something that benefits uh how do I say this? A brand needs to know the KPIs that actually matter and dive into it. I think sometimes businesses in general may not be highlighting those key aspects. For example, your warehouse is never, I would be very shocked as to see how many 3PLs highlight their on-time shipment dispatch orders on an easy-to-see dashboard. Most of the time, they're mm. not going to, that's going to be a problematic for them. If they're highlighting, we're not meeting our SLAs, they usually yep. don't highlight that unless they're actually attaining it. So if you have something, which is great. So I'm, I'm not saying like every 3PL is not doing that. I'm saying if your 3PL is not hitting the SLA, they're not highlighting it most likely unless they're actively trying to track it. And especially if you have some type of metric of chargeback, if you're saying like our SLAs require 99% on time to like dispatch or else X penalty happens, they're not going to highlight that at all. And so I think the way I'm going on this is a brand needs to understand what your KPIs are. And I, I'm just rambling at this point. Honestly, I just made more of a passion of things <laughs> of the analytics that most supply chain operators don't know what they should be measuring because it's not easily in front of them. Like my OMS yep. may not tell me all the information I need because they might be incentive or be looking at a different area than me as an operator need to see. Um, and so I think that's probably is pretty common across the, the board on, on things. Um, yeah. And so I think as, as operators understand their metrics and know what to look at, they can actually find those leaky holes. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm happy to hear that nomadic did have a happy ending. Um, you guys did eventually implement Bright Pearl. Um, there were issues, like there is still a gap in the market, but like ultimately, like, you know, you can adopt a system. You can mm. adopt it. You can adopt NetSuite. It's not like you can't. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. um, so that's, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And I appreciate your time today. We had some fun stories. Um, we gotta, we gotta build some, some networking groups within ops and supply yeah. chain. No, it's We've some, got some it's work to do, man. I'm trying to find them. Honestly, I'm like, they're not on LinkedIn. We're not. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we're on Facebook. I don't know. But I, I'm not. I'm on social media in general myself. It's not like follow me at Instagram or whatever. Like I'm not on there. <laughs> like, so I'm like, yeah. 
can't, I feel like ops are the hardest guys to market to in general. As I'm like, I don't know where we're just in our heads, man. We're in, <laughs> there's like an Excel advertising platform. It's, it's got to be this, uh, the solution that's, I mean, going back to the Mexico situation, like it was a solution to a problem and it was new. It wasn't like, I've heard this 27,000 different ways. Like, no slogan. I, I, I know. I, I, I say myself to myself that like the typical sales process doesn't work for me. I'm sure it does. I just tell myself I'm like the typical sales, what the sales gurus are saying. I'm like, ah, I can see through that BS, but I mean, I'm sure it'll fall for it every now and then, but it's definitely like the way I work at Corsa now is solutions over sales. Like the solutions to sell mm-hmm. itself. It's not like everything else where it's like very sales oriented. It's like, Hey, here's a solution. If it's a pain point, let's let us resolve it. Um, but I think the solutions should sell itself um, in general. I and mean, that's the best. Those are the business that succeed is that they do have solutions to actually work. Cause if not, same thing like we've I've experienced in the past is you jump providers with tech the way it is. In some, I mean, ERPs are different, but most other providers like, cool, you want to change different SaaS. SaaS is always coming out. Yep. Like, we want to change and their whole value prop is like SaaS business is meant to acquire new customers as with as least barrier as possible. So I think it's easier to change SaaS easy, easier than it has in the past. Um, but if you have a good solution, then you're not jumping. Like that's what you retain a customer for. Um, solutions retain customers more than anything. So that's, that's yeah, my thought. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it, man. Um, thanks for the op stories. And, um, I, I think we gave the listeners a lot of value. I think there's a lot of value in your story. I hope the ops listeners that listen to your stories understand, um, they were able to pull out some lessons, um, from your experiences. And I think they definitely will be able to. So appreciate it, man. Yeah, it's fun. I love doing this stuff. So yeah, I appreciate having on. I'm excited to see how your, your stuff grows. This is fun.